Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Before you listen to this episode, I just want to let you know that we will be discussing heavy themes of violence and sexuality. So if you have little ones in the room, I would suggest that you listen to this privately at a different time because there are some strong themes running through this podcast. Thanks and enjoy the episode. One, two, three, go. Feminist. Mormon. Housewives. Feminist. Mormon. Housewives. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series uh, where we seek to try to understand and dissect the practice of plural marriage and how it affects Mormons in the past, present, and um, perhaps the future. And I've got back for another follow-up episode, historian Joe Geisner. So, Joe, say hello. Hello, Lindsay and everyone. How are you tonight? We are great. And and thank you for coming back. I want to point our listeners, if this is their first time tuning in, um, for this subject, go back to last episode. This is part two of a two-part, um, two-parter on this subject. And if this is your first time tuning in at all, I'd recommend to go to episode one with Fanny Alger and work your way through. They're meant to go chronologically. But today I've got Joe because he is sort of um, an expert in this Utah period conflict. And I want to talk about the Mormon Reformation and the Utah War. So uh, if you were listening in last episode, we kind of covered a little bit, just we tried to contextualize a lot of these issues we're going to be talking about. Oh, I was going to say, and Lindsay, they, they're all dependent upon one another. All this stuff is all um, inter- interchanged or interworking, and you're exactly right. It's important to, to contextualize. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, that's the hardest thing is because this podcast is meant to go as chronological as possible, but these events really branch out and it's so important that we understand all of the events leading up to it. We covered, we talked about the Steptoe expedition and some of the prior expeditions before that. And I really want to understand because I, I think that all this Utah violence that really shaped us as a Mormon people and a lot of the doctrines and policies that affect women today come out of this period, come out of these fears, come out of these anxieties that Mormons had. So I think it's critical for us to understand these conflicts. I don't think we can get away from them. We like to think that Mormonism is away from them, but we really are not. So let's, yes. let's talk about the Mormon Reformation. Do you want to tell us, uh, tell yeah, us about the Mormon yeah, Reformation? And, you know, and it's something else I was thinking we probably need, you know, with the Reformation, we actually have to discuss a little bit about the hand carts because um, that that changes a lot of things that are happening. Uh, but the Reformation um, starts on September 14th, 1856 with a Brigham Young speech. It goes all the way into the summer of 1857. So what's that, nine months, say, basically? Um, it, it lasts, which most people think it just occurred just a short period of time, but it didn't. It, it was long and, and, uh, it was stressful. Uh, we were talking about Hannah Tapfield King and being that she was the last 
plural wife of Brigham Young and a little bit about her. Um, one of the interesting things she talks about, and she's married at the time to her husband, um, and uh, she, she, she and her husband are invited to a dance, um, a party, and Brigham Young walks up to her, takes her by the hand, and leads her to the front of the table to sit next to him. And during the night, they dance together. Now, remember, this is a married woman. Brigham Young's got multiple wives. They're all there. This is Victorian society. And about every single rule that can be broke is broke on that night. And the as she writes about this experience, the sexual tension is amazing as she writes. Now, now part of it is that that these entries she we don't have her original diaries um i'm i feel that they were either discarded or destroyed what she did was she took her original diaries and compact them into a seven volume uh account and what she writes about um the reformation is important and if you don't mind you know if you feel like you need to edit this down it's fine but this is a really important um account and it's and the best part is I've never seen it used anywhere else. So you're getting to have it first, first uh, here. And this is a woman, um, and a very intelligent and and well educated, well cultured, all of those things. But anyway, she says, Brother Grant has done some strong preaching lately and declared the polysophical was a stink to his nostrils. Brother Kimball called out, and in mine, said there was an adulterous spirit in it. Well, there may be, for he says there is, and probably he understands it. To me, it all seemed good and nice, which, of course, a little vanity and folly, and that one sees in the tabernacle everywhere, for the bulk of this people have been raised in poverty and ignorance. They immigrate here, and having been the servants and working people of the lands they came out of. They can begin on the first step of the ladder, for that is where they have always stood. They gain wealth, and being ignorant, they are filled with vanity and foolishness. Yet, they are perhaps not wicked, but they feel their oats, as the grooms say, and they think dress and money makes men and women ladies and gentlemen. Out of such a stock grows a shoddy aristocracy, no more like the true one than I to Hercules. Doesn't Brother Grant realize this? Father, let thy smile be upon me, for I can say I desire to do right, to keep right and pure before thee. Then all will be well. The rock of ages will shelter us from all other rocks. After this conference, the Reformation was instituted principally by Brother Grant, thinking the people had become adulterous, thieves, and etc. It fairly raged. Every bishop had the cue given to him, and he rose up and lashed the people as with a cat o' nine tails. The people shrunk, shrivered, shivered, wept, groaned like whipped children, they were told to get up in meeting and confess their sins. They did so till it was sickening and brought disease. 
the sacrament was withdrawn, the people were pronounced unfit to partake of it, and in their souls they sat in dust and ashes. It appeared to them that as many of the most sensitive and those who were desiring to do right, that they had committed the unpardonable sin, the whole people seemed to mourn, for, for all more or less came under the rod. In the midst of it, Brother Grant was seized with a fearful sickness. An evil spirit seemed to be let loose upon him and had the mastery. The priesthood seemed powerless when they administered to him. He raved, had visions, and etc., and at last passed to that bourne from whence no traveler returns. Never shall I forget the darkness, desolation, and horror of those times." My soul was prostrate in sorrow and mourning, for it suited my frame of mind at that time. These things lasted for weeks. It seemed like months. At last one Sunday, Brigham rose up in the stand, peaceful and benign, told the people to stop their confessions if they had sinned a sin between God and themselves. Go to your God and confess it. If you have injured your neighbor or robbed or in any way done him or her wrong, Go to your neighbor and confess to him alone and make restitution, but stop this confessing in public. He would have no more of it. He spoke like an angel, and his words fell like balm on the spirits of the people. There have been a catechism got up. The bishop and at least two teachers went around, and I think she's now quoting actually from her diary. I think the earlier was actually a reminiscent. She now goes back to actually quoting from her diary. Anyway, there had been a catechism got up. The bishop and at least two teachers went around and catechized the people in every house, taking some members into separate apartments. How well I remember them coming to our house. There was no one at home but Tom Owen and me. They asked if I desired to be questioned in a separate room. I said no, and smiling at Tom, I asked if he did. Poor boy, he was but 16. He looked as guileless as a child and said no. They then proceeded with me. It began, have you committed murder? Ditto, ditto, adultery, ditto, ditto, robbed, spoken slander of your neighbor, broken down your neighbor's fences, brought your children up in principles of righteousness, etc. It was over a foot in length. Blessed were those who could answer in innocence, but I do believe many in those times were frightened into praying and confessing sins they never committed. It was a fearful time for all. Whether it did good or was instituted by the Spirit of God is not of me to judge. I leave an open verdict, even in my heart of hearts. Only I know it was a fearful ordeal, and fear is a slavish passion and is not begotten of the Spirit of God. At last, the whole community was ordered to be rebaptized and start fresh again. They did so. They were as obedient as little children, and peace and happiness was restored. Wow. Pretty powerful, huh? Three things. First of all, thank you for highlighting her voice for us and bringing, bringing it to light. Second, that sounds exhausting. And third, it's almost, I mean, I'm, it's reminiscent of the sort of hysteria that was going on with the Salem you know, witch trials that everyone was caught up in this fever and you got involved and it was sort of this um, almost evangelical sort of commotion going on to the point where it resulted in fear and people, you know, 
accusing others of things that they hadn't done. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was, uh, well, you know, I think it's Mike Quinn who discusses in his book that uh, it would be extensions of power, that there were people who actually begged to have their throats slit, that they had, they had become convinced, again, like she said, they had committed the unpardonable sin, whatever that be, whether, you know, I mean, and it went all the way, I, as far as I understand, it was like, like she says, I mean, if you had walked across the street wrong, you, you know, you convinced yourself you had con- committed the unpardonable sin. And, and they would beg to have their throat slip, their blood dripped to the ground and, and, uh, smoke would rise up to heaven so that you would be forgiven. Yeah, I really don't think we can underestimate the fanaticism of 1850s Utah. People were fanatics. The situation was breeding fanatics. There was, there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of stress, a lot of hunger, a lot of, um, political struggles. And religion was not just, it was not about being your spiritual well-being. It was about community standards and enforcement, right? That's correct. That is absolutely correct. Um, as a matter of fact, um, here, I, I remember I pulled out a man named Milo Andrus. He was a, a polygamist. And she, his, one of his wives, one of his polygamous wives wanted to leave polygamy during this time. And so Young's advice, when Andrus asked what he should do about this woman who wanted to leave, his wife who wanted to leave, Young's advice to him was the only way to save the sister's soul was to cut her throat. Uh, and again, according to the report of this, okay, and so, I mean, you know, what is, uh, dead men tell no tales, so dead women don't either. Uh, Andrus took her by the hair and while she was thus on her knees, cut her throat from ear to ear and held her with that grasp until her body ceased quivering. Now, when I've heard these reports before, I I was told that these are unsubstantiated and that there's no real tie to the actual to actual church leadership. What is your opinion on that? <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll never forget what Will Bagley said to me. He said, "You know, they never did uh, convict Al Capone of uh, any murders. Never did. They had to get him on tax evasion." Yeah. Uh, you know, there were no, there were no bodies ever found. There, nobody ever said they killed for him. Um, and, and when you got like men like John D. Lee and Bill Hickman and, and Orrin Porter Rockwell doing your deed for you, you and again, you know, and, and the thing is Hickman, Hickman was saying this stuff before we knew about Al Capone or any of this. And he goes, I mean, you know, think about it. He says, we didn't work together. We worked by ourselves so that nobody could convict another person. Yeah. Well, and I want to give, I want to give the listeners some idea of what the U.S. government is going to be walking into, right? We're setting up this sort of uh, feverish. yeah, so let's let's just mention the Willie uh, the handcarts, okay? And and I would suggest there there's so much good stuff now on the handcarts. People really need to read about the handcarts. Um, Can't Will they Bagley, just watch Seventeen Miracles? Isn't that enough? 
<laughs> no. <laughs> oh boy, I, I, I have a in in the wine country. Uh, they have a saying. They said, "Life's too short to uh, drink bad wine." And I always said, and so now I've I've uh, made that my own and said, "Life's too short to read bad history or watch bad history." Amen to um, that. Pardon. I said, "Amen to that." Yeah. So, um, but uh, anyway, Will Bagley has written a uh, a uh, fantastic article that's free on the internet. Um, you know, we can put up uh, digital links um, for people, um, but you know, it's so important. And then if and people can get off Amazon, I think. David Roberts's uh, Devil's Gate is, you know, you can buy it for a few bucks, uh, either an electronic version or um, uh, so- softbound. Um, these are so, and and the women's voices that come out on that, you know, we, we're talking about w- women and how this all influences them. Uh, David David Roberts falls in love with a woman named Patience Loader. And Patience um, is interesting because she ends up actually marrying one of the men at um, Camp Floyd, or yeah, Camp Floyd, right? Um, one of the the Utah expedition guys. But um, she loses her again from England, loses everything from a fairly well well off family. She loses her brother. She loses her father. I mean, the 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 account of her father's death is um heart-wrenching and and uh university or utah state university press has published her entire autobiography in a beautiful and it and in electronic form it is free again on the internet the internet's wonderful and uh um you can't help but feel a part of it um but there were, you know, we know that there were, let's see, the sense, okay, here's what uh, Will Bagley in the latest study says about how many people died in in the Willie and Martin Hancard. He says, how many people died in 1856 disaster? Census of the dead were never taken, historian Tom Rhea observed, but Hancard Veterans reported about 225 souls perished in the Willie and Martin companies. The LDS Church's own experts estimate the 10 handcart companies suffered between 252 and 340 deaths. Wow. I, you know, it, yeah, yeah. It's just the percentage, the mortality is just – here's what David Roberts writes in Devil's Gate. If we take the range of the death toll on the Willie company as between – 66 and 77, and the range of the Martin Company is between 135 and 170, then the total mortality count in the last two handcart companies to travel in that year amounts to between 200 and 240. In contrast, the toll in the much more famous Donner disaster of 1846-47 was 42, only one uh, from one-fifth to one-sixth the number of deaths incurred by the hand carters. The conclusion is inescapable. The Mormon catastrophe of 1856 remains far and away the most deadly in the history of westward migration in the United States. Um, 
the interesting thing that's needed to be understood by people about the handcarts is it was men and the elderly who died first. The young women survived, not the men, because the men exerted pulling and, 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 um, they would give up food. They were protectors. And so they died off. So we have all of these young girls coming into Utah, into the valley with no parents, um, no brothers, nobody to watch them. These young girls were all farmed off to the different, um, families and taken. And in the Brigham Young collection, there's multiple letters about these men taking these girls in. We, we know that the youngest girl was 11 who was married to a man over 30. Um, some of these young girls were conceiving just three months after being married. And I think that girl was like 12 or 13 that the the youngest that was actually conceiving three months. I'm guessing the 11 year old was prepubescent. Um, so, and, and we have to point out that these that these people would have arrived after experiencing a great trauma, right? This is this is a very they lost traumatic everything. event. They lost every. I mean, we're talking everything. This there they would walk into the valley. And they had rags on their feet soaked in blood as they were walking in. And so, I mean, this, this is how fanaticism is born though, right? I mean, you take everything from a people, call it sacrifice, and then you attach conditions to it and fear. We talked earlier about Brigham's sort of secret police that he has. We know this happens. And I would just like to point out from a modern day perspective that a lot of the community policing that we do now and the fear that we have now about talking to our leaders, I think are remnants of these ideas of the fear that was real and very tangible to these, to these people. You lost a lot. You sacrificed a lot due to your leaders. You come into the, the valley. You marry the leaders and then dependent on their decisions. And like you said in our last episode, if you leave, you leave at a great cost and a great risk. Absolutely. Absolutely, Lindsay. That's great. Yeah. Couldn't have conceptualized it better myself. So can we talk about the the Utah expedition and how it leads to the sort of Utah war? They call it the bloodless war, but that's not really true, is it? That's correct. Bill McKinnon um, was really the first to start speaking out on that. That uh, um, And his work at Swords Point is a must read. Um, I gave – here's my little plug about myself. I did a review for the Journal of Mormon History – and I called it a near-perfect book. Uh, maybe I even called it a perfect book. I can't remember now, but it's also free on the digital website for uh, Journal of Mormon History. And for the review, not the book. The book you'd have to buy, um, but it's worth every penny um, on the Utah War. And so most of the stuff that I know about the Utah War comes from that book. Um, and you're right. A lot of people died. Um, I think Bill comes up with... 
right around two, 250 people somewhere. I, I didn't look that up. I'm sorry, but, um, but it's somewhere around that, that he comes up with a number of that many. Obviously the largest group being at Mountain Meadows, uh, with the Fancher party and, and that, um, and people like to, you know, people have always wanted to separate that out and you can't. You cannot. The, the the reason for the Utah War is because Brigham Young said he was going to divide the country in half, not half, but he was going to divide the country. There, He was going to stop all immigrant traffic from the east to the west. And California was... The, uh, the gold, it was the golden, that's why we call it the golden state. It was where the gold was. And the, the thousands upon thousands of people that started traveling to California, to, to the West, um, after the, after the Mormons actually announced and, and found gold and then announced the gold rush in California, um, which is a beautiful story, actually, um, one that we Mormons should all be very proud of, um, that uh, the, it was tens of thousands of people. It, before that, it was just a few hundred people were coming to the West, and, and everything changed. And, and Young wanted to stop that. He wanted to stop the flow of people because he wanted to bring the United States to its knees. And he in turn was preaching that he would unite the Mormons with the Indians. And it's very complicated, but he was searching out places where the Mormons would go to hide with their Indian allies. And one of the main places was up actually in Idaho on the Salmon River. And when the Indians actually attacked and killed the Mormons there at Fort Lemhi. Um, all of Brigham Young's plans went down the tubes, and that's actually why he ultimately ended up um, um, surrendering to Buchanan and to, to Cummings, who replaced him, um, Alfred Cummings. Um, but getting back to what he was doing, so he was he was trying to unite the Indians and the Mormon people and they would rise up and they would, they would slaughter the American people. And, um, and so with this rhetoric going on and the reports from the fed federal people in, in Utah territory, going back to Washington, um, Buchanan um, made a choice and, you know, people like to say that, that it all had, all had to do with polygamy. But Cannon had no interest really in polygamy. And the reason is, is because of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, Act, which repealed the 1820 um, Missouri Compromise. And so, uh, Stephen Douglas was advocating popular sovereign, sovereignty. And, and saying that the territories should only deal with that that they should independently deal with domestic institutions. 
Well, Buchanan interpreted that as slavery. Obviously, the Mormon people didn't. They saw that as polygamy. Well, Buchanan actually ended up agreeing with the Mormon point of view. And when he spoke before Congress about the Utah expedition, um, after he, this is after he'd sent troops, but he still, when he pro, when he said, he goes, he goes, he said, whatever the religious doctrines of the faith, meaning the Mormons, however deplorable in themselves and revolting to the moral and religious religious sentiments of all Christendom, he would not interfere. At the same time, he drew the line at theocratic rule. He said, there no longer remains any government in Utah but the depotism of Brigham Young. And so that was it. He had had enough. But it all had to do with Brigham Young being what, what again, what Buchanan felt was a despot. And, well, I just and, want to push back on you a little bit because I do think polygamy had more of a role in that he used it as a political leverage for his purposes. I mean, here we start to see the rhetoric of where where they use after the Kansas-Nebraska Act of polygamy and slavery being the twin relics of barbarism, and they become the political leverage that both parties start fighting over. So I do think polygamy had had a lot to do with it. Well, it, it, okay, and it, you're you're correct in okay. We have to separate. You're correct in the legislature. That is correct. the The legislature saw polygamy as an issue. Buchanan, though, did not. Oh, I see okay. what you're saying. Okay. okay, fair. So Buchanan didn't. Buchanan, Buchanan, and Buchanan was actually a Southern sympathizer, even though he was from Pennsylvania. I think he was actually a Southern sympathizer. So. So he was sort of like, you know, what you do in your own um, state or territory, you decide. But um, so so that's why he could overlook. He could compartmentalize that and overlook polygamy. But you're absolutely right. The legislature, completely different animal. And they wanted blood when it came to that over polygamy. I mean, and I use that figuratively. Um, because they actually weren't that enthusiastic about sending. There was a lot of debate among the legislature about sending troops to Utah. Um, the legislature was really ticked off because they saw it as a preemptive move by Buchanan to get the, the troops away from um, Kansas so that we're at, at Fort Leavenworth to not stop slavery. So you got northern legislatures really upset about that. But Buchanan himself, it was over. It was over Brigham's uh, wanting to cut the, the country apart. Yeah, and we kind of see Mormons getting caught into the, you know, in the middle of all these different political agendas. Growing up, I always thought, you know, the Mormons were kind of separate. The Civil War was doing its own thing and Mormons were over here. But really, I don't think we understand how much Mormonism has really shaped our country. I mean, we see it in suffrage. We see it with uh, slavery and abolition, and we see it in playing out in this very debate. It's been, it's used by different political parties for different, you know, agendas. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we, we see that. Well, that's politics. That's politics, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, Okay, so yeah, so um, Buchanan sends the troops. 
um, in the middle of it, um, the commanding officer um, gets called back, and um, Albert Sidney Johnston gets reass- or gets assigned, and the the troops are are stuck at near Evanston, Wyoming. Uh, well, actually, they're sort of spread apart, but 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 in that area, and they're stuck there because the Mormons are amazingly good at guerrilla warfare, and they are able to actually destroy the supply teams for the troops, and the troops almost starve to death in the mountains because of that. They actually had to send a group, and this is a woman, you know, it's an interesting story about one of the people that actually went to get the supplies down in New Mexico and bring them back to the the uh, troops was a woman and um she was the an indian wife of of one of the trappers um one of the mountain men who traveled with a contingent to go get the supplies and they brought them back one of the things that will bagby likes to point out is that you have you know almost 2500 men and women in the mountains in wyoming at almost the you know a year later, from the William Martin handcart companies, they survived the entire winter there, and I, I can't remember if there's no deaths or one or two. I mean, and if they're deaths, they're not caused by uh, the weather. You know, they're not caused by freezing to death. There's no limbs lost. You know, there's none of this stuff that happened in the William Martin handcart company because. These guys had supplies. They had stuff that kept them warm, you know, and the men and women of, of the of the U.S. Army of the expedition. So, you know, ju- that just in and of itself is actually a very interesting thing. The 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 juxtaposition of the two. Um, and I'm going to so go ahead and link to you sent me this great essay about women in the army. And I'm going to link it on the site so everyone can read it because there are some jewels in that essay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a very nice, a very nice article. The only thing I would get angry at Audrey over is that she keeps calling it Johnston's Army. I noticed that. I did notice that. And I'm actually finding it hard to not call it that in this yes. podcast. So. Yeah. So, um, so what, you know, again, this is not about women, unfortunately it's, but it, it is gory, um, is, so one of the trappers, one of the mountain men is, uh, William Yates, right? I believe it. And, um, he, uh, has supplies and the Mormons want his supplies. They don't want to pay for them. And, but the U.S., uh, army is willing to pay for his supplies. Well, who, you know, most of us as business people would decide to go with the guys who are actually going to pay you, you know? So, um, so on the pretext of him being a, uh, army sympathizer, the Mormons, um, capture him. And the, uh, it's one of the most gruesome stories, but I can't remember who actually, one of the first presidencies near there um, when it happens, and I think I think it's uh, Wells maybe who's who's not too far away, and um, 
in another camp. And so there's communication going on. And according to Hickman um, and the evidence, you know, Bill McKinnon and I both agree that the evidence is there um, that Hickman um, had received orders. And so Yates is a prisoner of war. He is bound. Uh, his hands and legs are bound. He's chained. And Hickman walks over, and, and Yates is asleep, so he's no threat at all. Hickman walks over to him with an axe and splits his head wide op- open and murders him right there in cold blood. Um, that's the kind of murders that were going on. There's another, um, and you've got the article about the Aiken party. You know, these were men who came from California. They had a fair amount of money. Um, there were people that they were hanger honors is what they called them. They would go around to wherever large numbers of uh, military people, personnel were, and they would set up gambling halls and, and, uh, there were women who were prostitutes who would follow them around. Uh, there were laundresses, women who were laundresses would be with them. They would actually be a, they were, they were actually commissioned by the army. Uh, some of the wives would travel. Um, but anyway, um, so this Aiken party was going to meet up with the troops on the eastern side of Utah and, and go with them to, uh, or travel with them and then come to Utah with them to set up a gambling hall for them. And so they, my understanding is the Aiken party was really well stocked with money, you know, pristine horses, uh, uh, saddles, you name it. You know, they were, they were dressed to the hilt and they just made a really bad decision to come to Utah. And, um, they were ultimately all murdered. Um, because again, the, and, and I believe, uh, Rockwell had something to do with that. It's been a while since I read the article, but, um, you know, there was, uh, there was that kind of stuff going on. Um, and it was, it was not a bloodless war. And we can talk, we can link to this. Uh, there are two articles. There's the artist partial article that frames it more generously towards the church. And then though, you the know, Bigler article, thing- is that right? Uh, pardon? Is it Bigler that wrote the other? Yeah, essay? David Bigler wrote the Aiken, correct. Okay. Uh, just one comment about Artist Partial's um, um, article. She writes about uh, Tobin, who had gone after, wanted, had romantic uh, feelings towards Alice Young, Brigham's daughter. And so there always was the rumor that Brigham Young had sought to kill Tobin. And actually, Tobin was not even the intended target of the murder or the 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 um, not murders the um, the ambush that occurred. And um, and again, there was always rumors that Rockwell again was there too um, involved in that. But but that was a, a situation of mistaken identity, and and Tobin had escaped the Indians. During the, um, PAL expedition 
you know, he had escaped Brigham Young being mad at him over Alice Young. And then the guy gets shot because of mistaken identity. It was like, whoa, you know, I mean, every other place he should have been killed. And then, you know, he gets mistaken for identity, mistaken identity over two other guys who were horse thieves. And Brigham Young had given orders to kill these two horse thieves. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'm Mar- constantly amazed at this history because my impressions of, you know, this time period was sort of like the legacy movie. You see the, the nice grandmother rocking in her rocking chair, recalling her events as if it was just this sweet time where you're, you know, the older women would make, you know, rolls and bread and the kids would churn butter and they would play games in the road. And that's what it was like. But the frontier Utah was frontier Utah. And I had no idea that I thought, you know, Mountain Meadows was kind of isolated but that's not the case. There were all these other skirmishes, murders, and uh, massacres going on at the time. It was a dangerous place if you fell out of line or if you were an outsider. Absolutely. And we haven't even touched on the uh, Potter Parish murders. And, you know, I think the best, because that's so uh, long of a discussion. Um, and I sent you the article by Polly Aird. Um, that you should just link to that also okay, because absolutely. that her article really is important in understanding the need for people to leave. They were, they were petrified and, and they wanted to leave. And that all, that whole murder is all about people just wanting to leave, wanting to leave Utah. And that was down in Springville. Um, so and so yeah. when we contextualize polygamy in the past episodes and in the future episodes, when you're hearing these sermons about divorces and about women leaving and about men feeling pressure, I I don't think we can totally appreciate the kind of pressure that these people were under. I mean, I, I want to talk about Bishop Snow in Southern Utah later with the castrations, because I think that Southern Utah violence needs its own podcast. But I mean, if you... If you stepped out of line, there was a chance. I mean, depending, it's like we, like we say now with Bishop Roulette, like if you had a local leader that was a little bit crazy or really well connected, you could get into a lot of trouble. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that didn't end just with, um, the, the ending of the Utah War in 58, in 1858. Um, one man kept writing to Brigham Young about John D. Lee continuing to be a leader down in Southern Utah. And, and, uh, he would write to Brigham Young and say, you know, I'm, I'm telling people that you don't support John D. Lee and, and they're telling me that I'm a liar and, and that I'm a bad person and, you know, his threats to his life and on and on. And so in one of, you know, final, actually it was his final response, to, maybe even his only response to this man. He said, well, you know, you seem to be so preoccupied, Brigham Young said, you seem to be so preoccupied with this. He said, uh, um, are you one of the people that committed these atrocious murders? He said, uh, and, and the guy had no involvement. Um, and he said, and, and if you are, 
He said, then my solution to uh, all your problems is you put a noose around your neck and give it one quick pull, and that'll take care of all your problems. Oh, wow. And this is, you know, after John D. Lee had told Brigham Young what had occurred. Brigham Young said, you know, the only problem I ever had with the with the massacre was he had to kill all those women and children. Um, and and there were under eight-year-olds that were murdered. Well, I like to point out with the Mountain Meadows account and John D. Lee's own hand, I mean, I know that that's problematic, it's not a biography, but he he doesn't frame it as eight. He talks about children um, who couldn't talk, which I think was very revealing. Yeah, and there's a um, uh, the a great book that uh, Richard Turley produced. Um, it's a documents volume, and I think it's called uh, Massacre, Mountain Meadows Massacre. Or, isn't it uh, Massacre at Mountain Meadows? Well, no, that's the that's the the narrative volume that ended <laughs> that ended at the massacre. It's still a strange book. Um, no, the uh, this is a documents. This was this was the the papers that when once part of the collection, the Morris uh, collection. Um, Juanita Brooks, it's a great story about Juanita Brooks going, uh, to the first presidency and begging them to see. And, uh, she talks about how in one of the meetings, the folder was actually sitting on the desk of whoever she was talking to. And they said, nope, sorry, can't see it. Um, and it was actually her cousin who took the documents. She was, uh, her cousin was an adopted child of Morris or something and, um, brought them to David O. McKay and they put them in the, the first presidency vault. And, uh, so those along with the Andrew Jensen, um, interviews, Richard Turley produced this volume that was, I think published by BYU press. Oh, I haven't heard of that. Yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful volume. And, uh, but anyway, Nephi Johnson, it's one of, there, there's, I think, four accounts by Nephi Johnson. And remember, Nephi Johnson's the guy who was the patriarch in Southern Utah when, um, Juanita Brooks was the little school teacher and, the Nephi Johnson came to her and said, I want to uh, tell you my story. And Juanita says that, you know, she got busy as a young school teacher. And so then one of the family members came and said, you've got to come, you've got to come. Nephi Johnson's dying. And so she says that uh, she ran to the house as quick as she could. And he was lying in bed and, he looked at her and she looked at him and he says, blood, blood, blood. So, and then he died. Yeah. Um, but a, anyway, she's a relative of mine. So I have a particular fascination. Well, this, this account, the one that was just released, um, that's been in the first presidency vault. He talks about this young, you know, they find this young child and he says they turn her over to the Indians. Uh, yeah, they were Indians dressed, they were white men dressed up as Indians is who they were. And, uh, turned this little girl or boy, I can't remember, turned her, turned her over and they killed her right there. So, 
Um, Among the other horrible atrocities covered. And, and we talk about that a little bit. We did an episode for Mormon Expression that I also linked here, but I would recommend people reading about the massacre specifically and listening to that and reading. I mean, the accounts are a little fuzzy because they of, of the actual um, survivors because they were written years and years later. But all of those survivors have fascinating stories too. One of them married the officer that uh, rescued um, the children and Anyway, that's a fascinating account. Truly, truly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and my plug is for Blood of the Prophets, by the way. So um, there's every historian um, outside of Mormonism uses Blood of the Prophets. We're talking about um, Daniel Walker Howe, the Pulitzer Prize winner, and Bancroft Prize winner, and on and on and on. Uh, Hampton Sides. Uh, I mean, everybody who's anybody who writes Western history uses Blood of the Prophets. Well, and I just want to editorialize on that a little bit because I have found it incredibly difficult. The Mormon framework and the way that we talk about history, its sources are so important. You know, like we have to be so careful about our sources. More, I mean, which is good. Responsible history is good. But I think that Mormons work under a presumption that it has to be positive faith promoting and when i set out to the to do this series i had no idea the sort of can of worms i was opening i i really hoped that we could find something affirming about this and 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 there are affirming stories but there's also so much darkness that we have to wade through to get there and i don't mean for these episodes to be so scandalous and dark but i mean this was a dark dark time and I feel like as Mormons, we're sort of taught and programmed to reject that because it makes us feel uncomfortable. But I really think that us healing and moving forward as a people is really like opening these doors and looking at our past. And uh, more, and even Mormon historians today are afraid to do that in, in a sense. Yeah, it, it is, you know, and yeah, yeah, it is. It's very... As you said, everybody has an agenda. And, uh, you know, some people seek truth as their agenda. And some people seek to protect. <laughs> well, I mean, I was talking about this with a friend. We were talking about how a lot of the accounts that we take ancient history from come from Plato or Socrates, you know, written written sometimes hundreds or thousands of years later. And we take that on its word. But, you know... A uh, polygamous wife talks about an affidavit like 40 years later and everyone says, I don't know about that. And I just think that the standards that we hold Mormon history to sometimes um, gets in the way of the history. And again, that maybe that, that sounded bad. I think scientific history is so important, but there are people that will disregard these scandalous stories because they are scandalous. Yeah. And yet, I think the church as a whole, now again, um, this is from my perspective, but I, two things going on. Well, first of all, I've said to some people, I said, you know, you can criticize Mormonism and you can, if you want to equate them to other religions uh, that are uh, not thought highly of, like let's say the Jehovah Witness or Scientology. And I said, but you know, the difference is 
is that we do open our history up to allow people to look at. You know, there's been some uh, non-Mormons like Bill McKinnon, John Turner, Jan Ships, uh, Alex Beam, who've now looked at Mormonism and um, they've had the church archives opened up to them and they have written fantastic histories. Um, in one way, I see us as unique in that we have actually been pretty darn good about facing our history. Yes, we like to mythologize, right? Um, we like to do that, you know, but at the same time, we open up our records to uh, really get a good look. Uh, you know, speaking of Mormon uh, women and their history, Leonard Arrington saw it. That was one of the most important things for him was both getting women inside the church history library. At the time, I think it was called Church Archives. Uh, but getting them inside those doors. So he brought in um, actually quite a few women. Um, and many of his ghostwriters, books that he put his name on, he paid women to write. Uh, the one on John Woolley was re- written by Rebecca Cornwall. And, you know, even though Leonard's name's on there, Rebecca wrote it. And it's thought of as one of the great biographies in Mormonism. And so he did that. And, and Leonard did, um, he paid them to do that. And they agreed to it. I'm not saying that Leonard did anything underhanded by doing that. Um, and she's in the acknowledgments and everything. So, um, and then he worked hard to get women's stories told. And so he would go out of his way and, and, and push, uh, people like Audrey Godfrey and, and, um, uh, Claudia Bushman and, uh, and get them to do Mormon history on women. And, and the other thing that we do, we have with Mormon women is that we actually have their record. Um, so many other events in history, you know, Civil War, and I don't know anything about the Civil War, actually. That's all. Well, that anybody who gets into that spends their entire life doing that. But as far as I know, there's very few women's stories that are told in that. Or, you know, and I do like the Revolutionary War period and, and the colonial period, but it's all men's stories, you know. But Mormon history has the women's stories. We've got the women's voices. And, um, you know, even for all the, the stuff we've talked about, even all the, you know, the negative things we've talked about, you know, having what I read by uh, Hannah Tapfield King and having her diaries, and those are on the Internet. They're available. The church history library is putting these beautiful records on the internet so men and women can look at these beautiful records and see what these women went through and and be a part of their life um it's it's really nice actually yeah that's really great and i and i appreciate that perspective so i'm glad you brought that up 
Um, is there anything else you want to talk about before we go kind of contextualizing this violence and, and how, how this period, what it was like to live in this period? No, I, you know, I, I think we've really done a good job. And like I said, you know, if people want to read further, um, you're going to, you'll have all these links and, and everything for people to read. Um, cause there is so much I and mean, we spent what, two hours or whatever. So no, I'm, I'm good. I'm good with that. Well, I just really appreciate you being willing to come. You should all know that he came on super short notice. I've been planning Sunstone, so I've been super swamped, and he just stepped up. You just stepped up and said you would do this, so I really appreciate that. Well, and yeah, with Sunstone, you're quite amazing that you could fit this in. I should ask, is there anything else you wanted to discuss with it? No, but I would love to have you come back on again. Um we're going to be getting into 1860s, 1870s, and then we're really going to get into the politics of of all of that, which is big. So anytime you have something to say about that and want to come on, I would love to have you. Well, that's very kind of you. I'd be more than happy to. Okay. Um, we'll link to the essays that you mentioned. And um, can people look you up if they have questions? Yeah. Um, they can either email me at r, like in Roger, B like in brother, S like in Sam, S like in Sam, man, at gmail.com or uh, Facebook. Either way is fine with me. Okay, well, and I should I just say again that I really appreciate all the resources you've given me. You've really sent me a lot of great stuff, so I appreciate that. Well, and you're doing a fantastic job. You really are. Um, your podcasts are fantastic. Thank you. I do enjoy doing them. And and that's a good plug for anyone that wants to support them. Go ahead on the donate button at feministmormonhousewivespodcast.org. You can sign up with a subscription to help keep these going and pay for our fees. So thanks again, Joe. And thanks for listening to the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. Thank you, Lindsay. <laughs> 